welcome to The Beacon, the podcast brought to you by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm Lydia Sheehan, and our topic this week is counter-terrorism. Today, I'm joined by Professor Louise Richardson, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford and a specialist in international security with an emphasis on terrorist movements. Her works include What Terrorists Want, Understanding the Enemy, Containing the Threat, and Democracy and Counter-Terrorism, Lessons from the Past. Her works have earned her awards, including the Summer Prize, work towards the prevention of war and the establishment of universal peace. Professor Richardson, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Delighted to be here. Now, when discussing counter-terrorism, I think a good place to begin is by defining what is terrorism and what makes a terrorist, because this can mean many different things to many different people. So, in your view, what is a terrorist? Well, I define terrorism quite simply as the deliberate targeting of non-combatants for a political purpose by a sub-state group. But I readily recognize that this, the definition of terrorism has been a loaded term, always has been a loaded term, and it's precisely because the international community has been uh, singularly unsuccessful in agreeing on, on a definition. It's one of the reasons why international collaboration against terrorism hasn't been as good as it might be. Um, you note from the definition I use, I use it um, simply in a fairly neutral way about the tactics that are used. So I think... It's the means that are used and not the goals that are pursued that should determine whether or not a group is a terrorist group. Now, not everybody would accept that approach, and it's precisely because people have been unwilling to label a terrorist group, a group whose goals they consider legitimate, that we have had such a difficult time in forging international collaboration. My own view is that the, the legitimacy of the goals is entirely distinct from whether or not a group is a terrorist group. I would argue that some groups, some terrorists have pursued goals that many people would consider legitimate. But the fact that terrorism is such a loaded term, people have been unwilling uh, to uh, attach it to groups, even groups that deliberately target non-combatants for a political purpose, if they think their goals are legitimate. Mm -hmm. Now, talking about the goals of terrorists, um, you yourself grew up in Ireland, and I believe you said in the past that at one point as a young person you could sympathise with the goals, for example, of the IRA, even if you didn't necessarily sympathise with their methods. Um, now, when thinking about counter-terrorism, what would you say it was? What were the deciding factors in meaning that you didn't ultimately sympathise with this kind of terrorist movement? Well, I think the fact that I share the goals of the IRA, the goals of the IRA at the time were a united Ireland. Those were also the goals of the Irish government and all the major political parties in Ireland. So their goals had widespread acceptance within the south of Ireland and within the, uh, the Catholic community of Northern Ireland. Their tactics, however, didn't. The deliberate targeting of civilians to achieve those goals did not have widespread support and um, has even less today. Uh, so I think there's, it's one thing about sharing the goals, it's quite another to approve of, of um, violent tactics to achieve them. Um, on that note, you could say that I think, for example, in surveys, a lot of Sunni Muslims have said that they maybe agree with the idea of um, a world caliphate or a world Islamic state. Um, and yet, obviously, the majority of Muslims do not agree with terrorism as a tactic. Would you say that um, it's that we can find a way to do this a similar thing to what the British government did to, um, to actually um, find a middle ground between the aims and our aims um, 
and what would you say are the right steps that we can take? Well, as a Democrat, I believe that uh, politics is the way to affect change. And so it's entirely legitimate that people have goals that are at variance with those of the state. Um, they're entitled to have those uh, views. They're entitled to mobilize politically to try to achieve those goals. Um, and, I, and people who disagree can counter politically. It's where they're prepared to subvert the state by deploying violence. Um, that I think one has to respond. So I think it's very important not to assume that because somebody has a view, whether it's sympathy with the caliphate, sympathy with the United Ireland, or what have you, that they're necessarily a terrorist. They're, they're not, I would argue, and it really creates a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if we start treating people as suspect because of, of particular political views they might hold. And. Um Previously, you've spoken out um, criticizing the prevent strategy, for example. Um, what would you say, where would you say, is this, it goes wrong in a similar way in that it's unaccepting of differing views, or, and how can we um, combat the threat of terrorism um, whilst being open to different views? Well, I, I'm entirely sympathetic with the goals behind the prevent legislation. I just think the legislation itself is wrong-headed and doomed to be unsuccessful for a couple of reasons. I worry about it for a couple of reasons. Um, from a university point of view, I really worry that um, our Muslim students may feel themselves suspect um, and therefore be afraid to or reluctant to avail themselves of the welfare resources that are available in the university for fear that they might be fingered in some way. I think by treating a society as suspect, um, we're undermining our own values, but creating a problem for ourselves, because the best source of intelligence is the loyal uh, Muslim community. The best source of intelligence against any small group is the broader uh, group with, with, within which they operate and from which they recruit. But from <clears throat> the second point um, is that from a university point of view, I think um, it is antithetical to the principles of a university to try and constrain legal speech. I think universities are places where all legal speech should be welcomed um, because they can be countered, they can be heard and countered. I think as teachers we can model to our students how to respond to views they find objectionable. So I think uni universities are the one place where these views can be heard, can be openly challenged and should be and uh, the prevent legislation makes that altogether more difficult. So I think it runs counter to the principles of, of free speech. Now, fortunately, in the course of the legislative process, the Lords managed to attach an amendment such that uh, universities have to have due regard for their obligation to defend free speech. So that has uh, mitigated the impact of the legislation somehow. Thank you. And um, in the past, I believe you were highly critical of the US response to 9-11. Um, I think you said that, in a way, um, the policy served to um, falsely portray the threat of terrorism um, in a way that wasn't helpful for countering the threat because it just created a culture of fear. But obviously, you know, 15 years on from 9-11, um, terrorism seems to be just as much of an issue today, if not more so. We've had attacks in Paris and Belgium. And um, it really seems like it's a major threat. Would you still stand by the idea that it, we shouldn't be overplaying the risk of terrorism? Um, yes, in, in, a, in a word. Um, 
again, I would say that I fully understood the reaction of the American government. I think any American government after that extraordinary and unprecedented atrocity would have been moved to act strongly. Um, but I think that by declaring war on terrorism, which is after all a tactic, and terror, which is in fact an emotion, um, the, uh, the US was in fact overreacting, was it declaring a war that it could not win. And while it is true, of course, that um, uh, we see a great deal more uh, <clears throat> terrorism today, I would think at least part of that is uh, as a result of what has happened in the intervening years, the, the war first in Afghanistan and more particularly in Iraq, uh, that was justified in terms of uh, the response to 9-11 has ended up uh, redrawing the map of, of the Middle East entirely. Um, which is not to say that there's nothing we can do against terrorism, but ultimately I see it as a political uh, threat rather than a military threat, and that by responding with the military, I think we're actually elevating the stature of the terrorists, one of the most powerful countries in the history of the planet, declare war on what was, after all, a fairly monthly collection of extremists um, living under the sponsorship of one of the poorest governments in the planet. I think we're elevating their stature to a degree which they could have only dreamt. So um, <clears throat> terrorists are invariably weaker than their opponents. If they weren't, they wouldn't be terrorists. If they had broader support, they'd, run, they'd, uh, they'd launch a guerrilla campaign. If they had mass support, they'd launch a political campaign. It's precisely because they're weak and outnumbered uh, that they deploy terrorism as a way of um, exaggerating their influence and having, uh, a, by committing atrocities, making the psychological impact and, uh, than an objective uh, assessment of their capabilities would, would suggest they're capable of. So um, I think we have to uh, resist the understandable desire to exact vengeance and to respond forcibly to an atrocity and instead take our time, assess the risks, and think from a more long-term perspective, how do we uh, prevent terrorists growing and, uh, and rely on more behind-the-scenes policies like good intelligence to, to counter them. So if you define terrorism as a tactic, would you say that ultimately, how do you see the future of our counter-terrorism strategy? Would you say that terrorism is something that will just always be there and all we, all we can do is just minimize the threat at any given time? Well, again, I think, yes, in a nutshell, terrorism is a tactic and it will be used as long as it's effective. Um, but there's a lot of things we can do. Um, we can rely, first and foremost, I think, on, on good intelligence. Secondly, we can strengthen our defenses. I mean, the fact that there hasn't really been a serious ter uh, terrorist attack in the U.S. in 15 years would suggest that um, uh, security cooperation and our defenses are very much enhanced. In this country, um, uh, again, the intelligence is, is second to none. This doesn't mean we'll be impervious to another terrorist attack. We, we cannot live in a free society and be immune to a an attack along the lines of that which occurred in, in Paris and so on. But what we can do is ensure that when this happens, that the population is resilient, that we understand the risks, that we resist the temptation to, to exact revenge, which is what motivates terrorism in, in, in the first place, and not be sucked into the spiral of violence. Instead, ensure that um, through, uh, um, 
through our ability to um, maintain the loyalty of the communities in which these terrorists operate, uh, that we can have excellent intelligence against them. So, yes, I think we will have more terrorist attacks. I think the odds of having a very sophisticated attack like that of 9-11 are, are very much reduced. Um, and really the key for us will be how we respond when the inevitable happens. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm joined now by Dr. Loretta Napoleoni, an expert on terrorist financing, money laundering and an advisor on counter-terrorism. Her works include Modern Jihad, Terror and the Economy, and Merchants of Men, How Jihadists and ISIS Turned Kidnapping and Refugee Trafficking into a Multi-Billion Dollar Business. Thank you, Dr. Napoleoni, so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, um, I thought it might be good to begin by asking you, uh, what do you currently feel are the biggest threats? in terms of terrorism? Well, I think the biggest threats in terms of terrorism um, are the possible attacks uh, in Europe. Um, it's actually quite cheap to do this kind of attacks and the reaction um, of even a small um, attack is generally um, very, very big in Italy, sorry, in Europe. So I would say that um, because we are so scared, um, even a small kind of attack will have an impact similar to a big um, scale attack. Now, I think that's the biggest threat at the moment. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. And um, so, obviously, you're an expert in the funding of terrorist groups. Um, it might sound like an obvious question, but I wanted to ask you, would you say that in terms of the different terrorist organizations, the ones with the biggest budgets are necessarily the biggest threats? Uh, no, yes. I would say that money is not uh, so important uh, in terms of quantity. It's actually more important in terms of how this money are allocated. So the Islamic State uh, has been extremely good in the allocation of funds. Um, if you look um, at history, uh, the PLO in the 1990s uh, had a turnover uh, which was much bigger than the turnover of the Islamic State in 2014 or 2015. Uh, but those money were not allocated as efficiently as the Islamic State um, has done. And how is the Islamic State getting its funding? Well, the Islamic State is taxing uh, the, uh, the population that lives um, um, in its territory. Um, so he has handed over the resources of the territory to the local population, so through the tribal leaders, and then he levies a taxation, which is very similar to the taxation that the nation state, the European nation states, levies upon its population. Now, of course, at the moment that the <clears throat> territory has shrunk, significantly, um, and um, the, the Islamic State is de facto a war with the coalition forces and also uh, with the Russian forces. I would say that the economy has reverted to a war economy. So there's not a lot of cash available. But there is enough, of course, for um, to carry on the battle for um, a little bit longer. We'll see. We'll see how things will develop now that there is a new president in the United States uh, who clearly is not interested in pursuing the coalition um, um, 
option. Um, and they are waiting also at the moment, uh, which is very interesting. They're waiting to see uh, what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then, you know, they will uh, um, develop uh, whatever uh, model uh, will fit the new circumstances. So is either going to be another taxation system uh, if they could achieve peace and they, um, and they could uh, retain part of the territories that they had or um, is going to be a model of war economy. Okay. And um, earlier talking about um, the biggest threats in terms of terrorism globally, you mentioned um, terrorism in Europe because of the reaction that it creates. Would you say that, for example, um, Donald Trump's new approach of wanting to um, ban uh, refugees and migrants from certain countries uh, is a good tactic to take, considering you know one of the things that terrorist groups thrive on is the reaction created by them? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the refugees, of course, are not the ones who are going to carry out the attacks. Uh, generally, the refugees are very fragile people, are also very traumatized people. So they're not um, the kind of individual that <coughs> have the <coughs> capability of carrying on an attack. Uh, it is true, of course, that, that the refugees that get more and more frustrated and they cannot integrate within Western society may become a potentially future jihadist. But I don't think that the ban is going to have an impact on, uh, on the short term, either on recruitment or on um, the Islamic State or uh, how the jihadism is <coughs> evolving uh, in those countries that are banned from you know, entering the United States uh, but also in the rest of the world. Uh, the ban is not uh, against Muslim. The ban is actually against anybody coming from those countries. So if you are from Sudan and you are a Christian, you, you are equally banned that if you are from Sudan and you are a Muslim. So this is something that Western media um, has not pointed out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm um, just going back to what you said earlier, um, talking about the financing of um, terrorists. We talked about ISIS and how um, they derive a lot of money from taxation, but how did they get to the point where they had enough funding to actually be able to build a state? Well, I mean, they got funded. Uh, they got funded by Saudi Arabia, by Kuwait, by Qatar, so uh, by the Gulf state uh, at the beginning of the civil war in um, in Syria. It was very easy to get those money if you were an armed organization willing to fight against Assad. Um, the difference between uh, um, a traditional uh, jihadist organization involved in this war by proxy and the Islamic State was that the Islamic State actually used those money um, to carve its own territory. So they had a plan, um, that, a long-term plan that they wanted to pursue, and this long-term plan was uh, the creation of the caliphate, not necessarily the fight against Assad. And once they got to that level, once they got sufficient territory, with uh, enough uh, uh, rich resources uh, to exploit, uh, this is when they abandon the sponsor 
so they didn't need the sponsor anymore. And this is when they became uh, um, a threat, a political threat to the entire region, including including to the sponsors. Mm-hmm. So you think that their relationship is changing now with their original sponsors? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The relationship with the sponsors changed. Now, of course, they still have a sympathizer coming from the sponsors' countries, but uh, there's no way that the government uh, of Saudi Arabia is now funding the Islamic State. Uh, but um, there are wealthy people in Saudi Arabia who probably are doing the same thing because uh, they... Um, it's almost a form of investment, meaning if then eventually the Islamic State will succeed, then the simple fact to be one of the sponsors will be very positive in terms of influencing the new state, in terms of doing business with the new state, and also in terms of, of perhaps pursuing um, uh, an agenda in their own countries, so weakening um, the elites. Uh, of the Gulf states, um, there are many reasons why uh, wealthy individuals may fund the Islamic State. Is there are many reasons why wealthy individuals had funded Al Qaeda? Mm-hmm. And and do you think they have a good chance of succeeding, or how long do you think they're going to be there for? Well, I think you know if they lasted so long, uh, mm, uh, I I I think. Uh, uh, they did quite well considering the circumstances, um, and now uh, if the U.S. pulls out of the coalition, uh, I think you know the whole coalition will collapse, which means you know they may have a chance to uh, retain part of the territory that they still control. Um, they will be able. Uh, to achieve a deal with the regime of Assad. Um, I don't think this is going to be impossible. Um, so uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, this is a very, very uncertain time because we don't know what's happening in Washington. <laughs> Until we get uh, a clear um, a vision of how uh, this administration is going to play in the Middle East, I'm afraid it's very difficult to do any provision. And what what do you hope for most of all? Well, you know, of course, you know, I hope that, that we can achieve a, a peace in the Middle East. We have to pacify the area. Um, if we do not pacify the area, uh, this is a phenomenon that may create even more problems outside the area. I mean, think about the impact that is having upon Boko Haram organization like Boko Haram in. Uh, um, in Nigeria. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us today. That was really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm joined now by Mr. Richard Barrett. Mr. Barrett is the former director of global counterterrorism at MI6. He's also a former British diplomat and was previously appointed by the UN Secretary General as the head of the Al Qaeda and Taliban monitoring team. He's now part of the Global Strategy Network, an organisation that aims to counter violent extremism. Mr Barrett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, when you look back over the past 10 or 15 years, 12 years ago we had the 7-7 bombings in London, 16 years ago 9-11, how would you say that the threat of terrorism has changed over this period? Would you say that 
the situation has improved, or would you say that terrorism is even perhaps on the rise? I think it's pretty much the same overall. You know, terrorism uh, is able, of course, to rise up and fall away according to the attacks that happen uh, in the public consciousness. But, of course, underneath that, there are many, many attacks that are being planned or plots that are being disrupted. And this constant sort of unseen war between terrorists and counter-terrorists proceeds pretty much at the same pace, I think, now as it did uh, 12 years ago before the 7-7 attacks, or even uh, immediately after 9-11. Of course, there are um, differences in this, in that uh, after 9-11 in particular, there was a very much a military response. You know, there was a desire to hit back, strike them, knock them out, kill them, all this sort of thing. And I think over the years, that understanding of the effective countermeasures has changed from being a purely military solution to being one which is much more nuanced and looks much deeper into why people become violent extremists in the first place. Yeah, I think that's interesting because um, I, I agree that, you know, perhaps there's still so, as much of a threat of terrorism now as there ever was before. But perhaps the tactics have changed, you know, after 9-11, we know how much airport security changed. And now, you know, a lot of the attacks that we're seeing in Europe are, are not bombs, they're not huge coordinated attacks, but they're small-scale things, you know, they're lone wolves acting with a knife, for example. And perhaps does that mean that there are limits to how much security and defence can do? And um, so are you saying that we need to be looking more at the ideologies? Well, yes, I think that terrorism, uh, sure, the spectacular terrorism of Al-Qaeda, flying planes into buildings, of course, is at one end of the scale, but there's always been quite a lot of terrorism which has essentially converted everyday objects into into weapons. We see it most recently, of course, in the attacks by trucks and cars driving into pedestrians. But yes, overall, uh, the, the understanding of terrorism, I think, has grown, or this current wave of terrorism, because I think people looked into the reasons for previous waves of terrorism. If you think of the United Kingdom, of course, and the IRA immediately comes to mind. And then there was a consideration of, well, what would we have to do politically to try and stop this problem? The current wave of terrorism, I think, presents slightly bigger cha- cha- challenges, because it's not just a political solution that you need to find, but much more also a social and economic one as well, and maybe other um, issues to do with ideology. Because the people who are drawn into terrorism today are really much more a group of people who appear to be seeking a sense of identity, of purpose, of belonging, all these sorts of things, which are much more in flux than they were uh, earlier on. And of course, earlier terrorist movements, and some today too, for that matter, were much more nationalist, they're much more clear about the identity they were promoting, even if it was a sub-identity of a bigger identity, and that was the raison d'etre for the movements. Mm-hmm. Now you have al-Shabaab, for example, in Somalia, which is a sort of nationalist terrorist group. Maybe you call the Taliban in Afghanistan this uh, terrorist group, and that's also a nationalist movement. But beyond that, the biggest threat comes, of course, from groups which don't have a nationality as such. They don't have an ethnicity uh, but they identify themselves on a global uh, level. Yeah. And how would you say, can, can we find a, a common ground with these terrorists? Because as you say, their, their ideas might be in flux. You know, it's not like there's a 
necessarily a clear end goal, or if there is, for example, in the case of ISIS, they, they want to establish an Islamic state, but for the average non-Muslim person, it's not really an ideology that you can get behind very easily. So what are the areas that we can use to find a common ground or um, an understanding with people to help um, prevent the spread of these dangerous ideologies? Well, the Islamic State, if we take that as an example, really offers people who, who, who uh, you know, Muslims or belong to the Islamic faith, it's a stark choice. They say, look, there's only one way to practice Islam, and that is the way we do it. And either you practice Islam the way we do it and, and uh, fight the enemies of Islam uh, as we see them, or else you're not a Muslim. So they don't allow for any common ground to discuss. You know, it's either us or everybody else, and everybody else is an enemy. And that narrative of, uh, that appeals to people who maybe feel discriminated against or disadvantaged in some way, or just without many prospects, any opportunity for self-betterment, they say, well, it's not you who are at fault, it's your circumstances. And it, your circumstances are caused by all these other people. If you were with us, you would be able to express yourself, you'd be able to achieve all your objectives and your aspirations and so on. But you're being held back by the circumstances around you. And therefore, it doesn't matter that those people call themselves Muslims. They're not Muslims. They only pretend to be Muslims. So they try to then uh, intertwine the sense of um, hopelessness, if you like, um, <clears throat> or failed ambition of those people and their confused identity into a religious ideology. And that is a very, very stark uh, approach which allows very, very little room for anybody to discuss with those people who are attracted to it, well, actually, there are better ways forward. But if you can get them early enough and, and show that there is opportunity, show that uh, you know, all the circumstances that affect them personally affect many, many millions of other people, and, and it's all our duty to try and make them better. Then I think perhaps you can undermine the Islamic State ideology, but it's difficult to have any sort of discussion or um, dialogue with people who are on the extreme like that, because they don't acknowledge that there's any other way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right when you say that um, these are the kind of approaches that we need to be taking. Um, however, I think I, I hear a lot of counter-terrorism experts saying that um, what we need to be addressing is the ideologies and we need to be understanding what makes a terrorist. But I think um, political events over the past year or so have shown that the general public doesn't like listening to experts on a lot of issues, social political issues. So um, I think naturally when, when people see on television attacks which maybe maybe it might not actually have as much of an impact as they appear to have on, on, on television, in the media. The public like to see um, huge reactions, um, strong reactions, for example, you know. And how, how do we go about um, creating a balance between what the public maybe want to see emotionally when they see terrorist attacks, but what we actually should be doing um, long term? Well, yes, of course... The public do want an immediate response. They, they don't like to be frightened and they want to be reassured and they think that a heavy hand and a clamp down on these people, whoever these people are, will solve the problem. But we know that that's not true. So a politician may attract votes and support by saying, well, I'm going to take a, a firm stand against terrorism. But actually, what does that mean? You know, there are no politicians out there who are taking a soft stand on terrorism. Everybody wants to do something about it. Mm -hmm. But... 
Of course, the public are encouraged to think there are easier solutions than are being adopted. But that is very dangerous, because then the public is always disappointed. You can't have 100% assurance against terrorism. So really, you set yourself up for failure by, by offering to provide that. So I think there's a big job for politicians, maybe for the media as well, though the media you know, isn't, isn't out there to do that, but for politicians and other community leaders to explain that terrorism is a bit more complicated than that, that there will be terrorist attacks and the activities of the state try and limit those attacks as much as possible. But there will be some more. And um, therefore, you try and build social resilience. You try and get people to understand that not all, that you shouldn't stigmatize whole communities because one member will commit a terrorist attack, for example. Um, and also, you, you need to look more closely into, if you have a family of six siblings, why is it that one or maybe two may go off to join a terrorist group, while the other five or four do not. You know, they're facing exactly the same circumstances, they probably have the same levels of education and so on. So without that deeper understanding and without some sort of public understanding that you need to have that better knowledge, I think it's quite difficult for getting the community as a whole to say, yeah, you know, this is a problem. It may be at a peak, it may be a sort of middle level, it may be in a trough, but anyway, it's a problem that we have. And we sort of are all aware of it. We do what we can in our own small way and hope that the state is doing something more uh, particularly effective in preventing further attacks. Thank you. And um, just going back quickly to um, your past, you know, your background, and you said, you know, you've worked for the British government for 30 years, um, I believe. And you mentioned how our approaches have changed. You know, initially there was more of a military approach. Um, how much would you say that the UK, for example, got it right when it came to countering extremism? Or would you say that actually we bear some responsibility? You know, there are people that say by invading Iraq, for example, we just created more instability in the Middle East, which has led to um, more extremist groups being able to um, gain influence in this area. Or, or, or did you actually, um, has the British government managed to do a lot, but just perhaps we don't recognise how much was really done behind the scenes? I think the, all the emphasis of the British government now, and if you look at the aid programme and so on, it's, it's huge, um, is in trying to support the development goals of other countries as well as our own. And that, I think, in the long term, is going to be an effective counterterrorism measure as well. It may not be classed as a counterterrorism measure, but it will be effective in that field. On the invasion of Iraq and other policy missteps like that, that's bad if you do it as a counter-terrorist counter measure. It wasn't a counter-terrorist measure. And indeed, as you say, it probably made terrorism worse. Uh, overall geopolitics, you know, the alliances that you have to support and, and uh, the enemies you're prepared to cast, well, that's, that's how history works, isn't it? There are always people on one side, people on the other side, and people fighting for power and influence and territory. Um, Invasion of Iraq, yes, was a huge mistake. I think most wars are a huge mistake. Foreign interventions always have many, many unintended consequences, and you have to be ready for those, and um, you can't go backwards. You know, this is where we are right now, but um, it's nice to think one could learn a little bit from the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So uh, just a final question, then, building on what you're saying there. Um, how do you see this progressing, and uh, what... What's the end goal and how do we achieve it? Or is there an end goal? Because can we actually defeat terrorism if it's a tactic? 
Yeah, terrorism is a tactic, you're right. Why do people become terrorists? Because terrorism is a successful tactic and it gets a huge amount of attention and causes a lot of fear and intimidation and so on. And therefore, you can achieve political goals with relatively small groups and small effort. How do we combat that? I don't know. I mean, terrorism has always been an effective tactic. But the best way to combat it is to have fairly strong senses of identity. And they may not be identity in, in that, you know, I'm uh, from Algeria and practice Islam and, uh, you know, a male or whatever. Uh, but it will be identity more in that we are a society that shares a particular set of values. And those values include good governance, proper justice, uh, equal opportunities, all that sort of thing. You know, the universal values that we enshrine in the UN Charter and so on. Um, and by enshrining those values, okay, we may take some hits from people who don't uh, accept those values or, or, or live by them. But nonetheless, that, I hope, would progress society so that we build a resilience, a social resilience to people who do resort to violence to promote their political message um, by just condemning it and trying not to respond to it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope we can see more of these kind of tactics. Um, well, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. But thank you so much again to all our fantastic speakers. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Brussels School of International Studies at the University of Kent and to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you also to podcastthemes.com for providing the intro and outro music. And thank you to you, the listeners. And until next time, goodbye.